Well, good morning, Urbana. If I haven't met you before, my name is Michael Rhodes. I'm one of the pastors at uh, Veritas, and it's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, good to see some familiar faces I haven't seen in a while. So uh, just sweet to be with you guys. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. So if you are weren't here last week, we started, uh, we're marching through the book of Revelation. Now Revelation is one of those books that some of you get really excited about because you've studied a lot of it, maybe too excited at times because you've got charts all over trying to figure out what's going on in Revelation. Others of you, um, maybe you're intimidated when you look at Revelation. You're like, oh yeah, I read that in my reading plan during the year and then I had no idea what it meant. It was cool to read and it was weird to read, but I have no idea what it meant, right? So Revelation is one of those books that even if you didn't grow up in church, you kind of look at it like, oh, that's that strange book of the Bible, right? So uh, our hope is to take uh, the next several weeks, several months, and march through this book, and hopefully we get to the end of it and go, oh, I get what it means. I get what this is about, all right? So let me give you a quick recap of, of the first three verses that we talked about last week, really an overview of the book. If you missed last week, or uh, maybe you're like most people and you forget the sermon by the time you get to lunchtime, all right? As a pastor, we get it. You forget them really quickly, all right? So <clears throat> that's why in our connection groups, we talk about sermon. So that you are reminded about it at a different time, all right? So in, in this book, what you have is uh, this Apostle John has received a vision or a revelation from God. And he is to take that picture that he's seen and he's going to write that down. So it's kind of this picture of like what's happened in the past, also what's happening currently in seven different churches, and then what's going to happen in the flow of the future. So from the time that Christ resurrected until Jesus returns, what all is going to happen? And so in the midst of this, you've got a group of people that's having a really hard time. So these seven churches are receiving this letter, and these seven churches are going through a time of intense, tremendous persecution. Now, it's not like persecution, like, oh, I got made fun of at my job. Like, now that's real. That's real life, right? But these people are like, oh, I might get murdered today because of my faith. My family member may not be here any longer because they follow Jesus. That's the type of overwhelming circumstances and odds that this group of people finds themselves in. So this letter is meant to encourage them. To say, hey, don't give up. Because there's a real temptation. I don't know for you, but if I'm like the threat of my kids being killed because of my faith, I'm like, uh, there's a temptation that I just want to go quit, right? Now, I sure hope I don't do that. Like, I see a bigger picture of Jesus, and that's what we're going to get to today. But in this, when these overwhelming circumstances, when you just want to give up, or at minimum, you just want to compromise, like, the world's hard, the world's against us as Christians, like, I'm just going to give up, I'm going to compromise, you know, I'm just going to kind of, I used to be, like, not for that, but I, I think it might be okay now, right? This thing or that thing, this characteristic or that characteristic, this practice, that practice, and we begin to find ourselves tempted to compromise, so John is going to send this letter, this revelation, through this letter, and what his hope to do is to encourage them not to give up, not to compromise. But you need encouragement when you're discouraged, right? When 
The odds are stacked against you. The odds are even laughable at times. Like, how are we going to get through this? And you find yourselves getting discouraged. And John was probably an overseer of these churches at one point. So he knows these churches. He's seen them flourish. And now he's seeing them compromise. And we'll talk all about their compromise next Sunday. But as they do that, I imagine John going, man, like these were good churches now they're struggling with materialism and immature doctrine and all these types of things. And maybe you've been there. Maybe, maybe it was a church that you grew up in. And now we have access to listen to people's sermons and watch people's sermons all the time. And maybe you went back and you watched the church's sermon that you grew up in. And when you did, you're like, man, like they didn't even open their Bible during the sermon. Like this was a church where I learned about Jesus and now they've, they've compromised. Or the things that they're endorsing in their church, like they would have never done that in the past. But now because of the pressure of the world, they begin to feel that pressure and begin to give in. If not give up and just shut their doors. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there in your own life. Where life's just hard. And maybe it's not the temptation to um, just quit like Christianity and your faith. But you're, you're at the point where like, man, I'm just so discouraged by the trials that I'm walking through right now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you would say that? Like the stuff that I'm having to walk through right now is really, really hard. And some days I do want to quit. And some days... I do want to compromise. And that's where these churches are at in this, that are receiving this letter. And we know when we find ourselves in those times where we have those kind of temptations, we begin to turn to a lot of things and put our attention on a lot of things to give us comfort, to give us courage, right? Oh, if I could, like, I'm just going to work really hard. And if I work really hard and keep my job, I know life's crazy, inflation is crazy, all this stuff is hard, but if I just work hard and keep my job, then I'll be encouraged. If I just work really hard, like my bank account will be okay, and if I just keep a healthy bank account, then life will be better. If I just surround myself with people who are like me and tell me what I want to hear, then life will be better. You may have ever been there before. And then it quickly falls apart, right? Those things don't last. So what's going to give us assurance? What do we look to? What should we like listen to to find assurance when things are overwhelming and hard? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What do we look to? Where should we go when life is overwhelming and difficult? All right, so Revelation chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be starting in chapter 4. So it says, John... <clears throat> to the seven churches that are in Asia. All right, so the Apostle John, again, he's writing to these seven churches. This is like modern-day kind of Western Turkey is the area of the world that we're talking about. Now, he is, he's writing to this group of people. Now, here's something that you need to know specifically as we march through Revelation. The number seven is going to show up often. Now, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about some weird numbers. That if you multiply this and add this, this is the day that Jesus is going to return. Like, we're not talking about that kind of stuff at all, all right? But you need to know that when the number seven really shows up through most of the Bible, 
And then especially in Revelation, the number seven represents completion or fullness, all right? So, for instance, like in Genesis 1, how many days of creation? All right, you can do better than that. How many days of creation? Seven. seven, all right. So six days of creation and seventh, God rest, right? So <laughs> the creation was complete or full at that point. This is critical. It's even going to show up another time through this. So John is writing to this complete picture of the churches. So this letter was not meant to just go to these seven local churches. There's actually a letter to each individual church but they were going to be carried around to all the different churches and they were to read this letter. But this number seven represents, this is written for all churches for all time. Like this book of Revelation isn't just relevant to these specific seven churches, but to the church throughout history. So it's important for us sitting in Urbana, Iowa in 2023, there is relevance to what's going on because we all have the odds stacked against us at some time where we're going through overwhelming circumstances. So, we continue. So, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and then continuing in verse 4. <clears throat> Grace to you, and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. <clears throat> so, and then keep going. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So, Grace and peace. Now, if you have read your Bible at all and you read through the New Testament, you know that most letters start that way. Grace and peace to you. The Apostle Paul writes, grace and peace to you. Like, and we kind of read over that like, oh yeah, grace and peace. That's what Paul's supposed to write. That's what John's supposed to write at that time. But there's so much more to it. Can you imagine the temptation, not just the temptation, the reality around you of being persecuted in your faith tremendously? Like, don't you think in that moment, grace and peace may mean something different? It means something huge. Please, God, just pour out your grace on me. This is really hard. Please, God, pour out your peace on me. This is really difficult. So grace and peace, I think, means something a little, not means something different, but it's more significant to this group of people because of what they're facing. So God, please pour out your grace, pour out your peace on me. So when they hear that for the first time, like, yes, please give me grace and peace. But it's not just the grace and peace. It's who it's coming from. That's so important. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is he talking about? Who is this grace coming from? He's talking about God. He's talking about God. Not a complicated answer there. He's talking about God. Now, when it says who is and was and who is to come... All their minds are going to go back to Israel. And they're going to go back to Israel when the Israelites were held in captivity for centuries in Egypt. And then you remember the story maybe. God goes to this guy named Moses. And he says, hey, my people are in slavery in Egypt. And I need you you to go to Pharaoh, who is the major opposition at the time. He's like the ruler of the world, basically. I need you, Moses, and I know you have a stuttering problem, but I need you to go, and I need you to go tell the enemy, hey, let my people go. And Moses is like, uh, um, I'm, mm, uh, who am I supposed to tell him is sending me? And does anybody remember 
Like, who is sending Moses? What was he supposed to say? I am. That's weird, right? I am is sending. Like, who is sending you, Moses? I am. The one that exists. The one that exists in the past, the one that is now, and the one that will rule forever more than your kingdom, Pharaoh. Like, this is a big deal. Like, this is the eternal God. The one that cannot compare, that will rule forever. This is where grace and peace are coming from. The one who is and was and is to come. So, you can't just say like, well, Egypt was a big deal back then. They were a strong opposition. And what did God do? He conquered. Well, Babylon was a big deal at one point. He conquered them too. Well, Rome's really persecuting us now. And if you're one of these persecuted churches that's finding out like, oh, grace and peace is coming from God the Father? Like, that's an amazing thing. Like, your own God's team? Like, how much encouragement does that bring? He's the one that's existed forever. He's the sovereign one. He's in control of all kingdoms. Like, it's a big deal. And I was trying to think through like illustrations that would like help you understand how incredible it is to be on like God's team. And I thought like, okay, if you were a football player and you were on Tom Brady's team, wouldn't that be awesome? Except that he lost in the playoffs two weeks ago. Like he's won a lot of Super Bowls, but he lost and he's lost multiple times. But you could be on a basketball team with Michael Jordan. He's like old and retired now. You could be on a baseball team with Babe Ruth. He's dead. Right? Like none of those work. Those illustrations just fall short. But if you're in this overwhelming circumstance and you're being persecuted for your faith and John writes down this vision, he says, grace and peace is coming to you. And guess where it's coming from? The one who is and was and is to come. That's a shot in the arm. That's encouraging. But it doesn't even stop there. It's not just from God the Father. It says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Some of you are like, oh, okay, here we go in Revelation. Like, what's he talking about? Seven spirits that are before the throne. What is this? <clears throat> what's the number seven mean? A complete, full picture. Now, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I'm going to read it from the screen here. It says, go to Isaiah chapter 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I'm going to count how many spirits we got. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven. You're getting a complete picture of what? The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is literally giving the people at that point, I want you to understand the full picture of the Holy Spirit. So this grace and peace that are coming from, they're coming from God the Father, and it's coming from the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it a big deal that grace and peace would come from the Holy Spirit? So another story in Bible history. At one point, the temple is the, the major place where you go worship. But it's destroyed. 
when the Babylonians take over and they, take, they bring the people out in exile, well, at some point, the, the Israelites are allowed to come back. And when they come back, they go, man, we've got to rebuild the temple. Rebuilding the temple was an overwhelming task. So already you've got the, these people in these seven churches being reminded of the overwhelming task being in Egypt in slavery. Now he's reminding them of a time back in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, where the Holy Spirit had to do something amazing in overwhelming circumstances. So in Zechariah, we'll, we'll read this. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, all right? Now, Zerubbabel was the guy that was in charge of rebuilding the temple, taking over and leading this overwhelming task. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How are you going to accomplish this? You can leave that up here. How are you going to accomplish this big overwhelming task? Not by your own might, not by your own power, but by the Spirit of God. Keep going to the next one. Who are you, O great mountain? So this, you're like standing at the bottom of a mountain and you're looking up like, man, this mountain is huge. How are we going to accomplish this mountain? Like, he says, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the top stone and amidst shouts of grace. Grace to it. The Spirit of God is bringing grace. Keep going. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Do you see what's happening? Zerubbabel, how are you going to rebuild this temple that's so overwhelming? Not by your might, not by your power, but by the spirit of God that dwells in you. And when it happens, you're gonna shout grace grace to it the spirit of god is bringing grace to his people so there was this overwhelming circumstance in egypt hey god the father is going to take care of this there's an overwhelming circumstance to rebuild the temple the spirit's going to take care of that do you see how encouraging this could be for a group of people going through significant persecution but it doesn't stop there verse five It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. You get a picture of the Trinity here. Nowhere in scripture do you get the word Trinity. But here you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together. And so it says, you get this picture of Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time finishing up this sermon just a little bit on a picture of Jesus. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But he says, you're a faithful witness. Jesus is the reliable one that you can count on. Not just reliable. It says he was the firstborn of the dead. That mean, doesn't mean like he was the first one that was born, all right? But when he resurrected, he bought, brought about a new creation. And so now Jesus takes priority in all creation. And Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, writes it this way. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. (coughs) Sorry, I can't get rid of a cough. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
This is the picture of Jesus that the Apostle Paul is writing. And he's preeminent. He is supreme. All right. Now, when I think of supreme, you know what I think of? Pizza. All right. I like supreme pizza. Okay. It's got everything. On Friday nights at our house, we have pizza and movie night. Now, I've got an 11-year-old, 6-year-old, 4-year-old, and a 1-year-old, all right? 1-year-old's kind of clueless about the movies. She usually goes to bed in the middle of it, all right? But the boy, I have three older boys and then a little girl. The boys love pizza and movie night. But you know what kind of pizza they want? Pepperoni or cheese. That's it. That's it. I'm like, boys, you could order it all. You could have it all. You could have Supreme, but what are you settling for? completely something less, right? Like you could have the best preeminent pizza that's better than everything. But what are you settling for? Cheese pizza. Now the four-year-old is like, oh yeah, that's the greatest thing in the world, right? He thinks it's preeminent, right? But we know better. Like we have a bigger perspective. Like, no, this is greater. This is Jesus. He's supreme. And we settle for everything less in our lives. I'm overwhelmed. The circumstances are too hard. Well, let me just run to Netflix. I'm overwhelmed. Things are really hard. Let me just run to a hobby. And you see what happens? Like in overwhelming circumstance, we're not running to the one that's preeminent, this supreme, but we settle for so much less. Guys, The grace and peace was coming to these seven churches from the one who took over Egyptian rule, who helped rebuild the temple. The one that is supreme over all creation. says Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. His resurrection established a kingdom. And there's opposition, the kings of this earth and the people of the kingdoms and the satanic forces behind those kingdoms. But Jesus is the king that's going to rule in a greater kingdom. So when you're overwhelmed by the trials of this life, do not forget that Jesus is on your side. I know that's a simplistic thing. You're like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Look at Jesus. But like, don't just look at a small picture of Jesus. Look at a supreme, preeminent picture of Jesus. So who is this letter coming from? It's coming from God the Father, the Spirit, from the Son. And then as we finish verses 5 and 6, it says, To him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is just a statement of praise. Many of you grew up in church singing the doxology, right? It's a song of praise. That's what's happening here. John's just making a statement of praise about how awesome Jesus is again. He's like, he's the one that loves you. He's the one that freed you from your sins by his blood. He's really like doubling down on their identity. Hey, remember, grace and peace are coming to you. But grace and peace are coming from God and the Spirit and the Son. And let me tell you about the Son. He's the one that frees you from your sin. He's the one that loves you. So as you walk through these trials and you walk through the persecution, don't forget your identity. Don't forget it. He says he's made him a kingdom of priests. In Exodus, it's not going to be on the screen, but after the people were taken out of Egypt and they're in the, stuck in the wilderness and they're like, oh uh, yeah, this stinks. Like you brought us out of slavery. Now we're just wandering around forever. This is not cool, right? This is hard. I would imagine they're quite overwhelmed again. And in that, 
God reminds them, hey, if you keep following me, because you're my people, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. So this idea that you're going to be a kingdom of priests, again, takes their minds back to Egypt when the task was so overwhelming before them. The trial was so big. So he's saying, hey, look, this letter that I'm sending to you, it's coming with grace, and it's coming from peace, and it's not coming from anything that you can dream up. It's coming from God. It's coming from the Spirit. It's coming from the Son. And you don't forget who you are, church. Don't forget who you are. Then verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. This is not complicated, guys. This is saying Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and he's bringing vindication with him. Like, that's good news. If you're a persecuted church, and you're like, I might die at any moment. This opposition seems huge. The fact that Jesus is coming back from his church is great news. And this is all a picture from Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Where this one, like the son of man, comes back on the clouds. And he's going to rule this eternal kingdom. And this is where their minds are going back to. And it says, when the vindication comes, when he comes back, everybody's going to mel- or well or mourn on account of their sin. When you stand before a holy, righteous God, unless you've been covered with the blood of Jesus, it should, it's going to be the scariest day of your life. I'm not trying to like scare people into something. That's reality. Jesus is returning. And if you're not covered by the blood of Jesus, it's not a good day. And it's not a good eternity. So then in verse 8, God kind of doubles down on who he is. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. So who is this letter coming from? It's coming from the Alpha and Omega. Those are two Greek letters. So they're speaking Greek at this time. They're writing in Greek. The first letter is the Alpha. The last letter of the Greek alphabet is Omega. So what he's saying is, I rule over all of history. From beginning to end, you can count on me. I'm the Almighty. I'm the Almighty. You don't, have, you don't have to worry about this anymore. So this letter's coming from somebody far greater than John. That's what he's reminding this church. And you need to pay careful attention to it. Pay careful attention. And, but you can find your assurance there. So then let's jump down to verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos and on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So again, this is where John is just identifying himself as the one who writes the letter. And he's saying, look, I'm a brother and I'm a, I'm a, a partaker or partner in this with you. So what is he saying? Hey, in your persecution, I get it. And I get it because right now I've been exiled to this island called Patmos. Because of my faith. Not because of crime I committed, but because of my faith. So I am right there with you, churches. He said, I get it. Don't you love it when like, you're walking through a hard time and somebody can come alongside you and go, I get it. Like, isn't that kind of an encouragement to you? I put my arm around you. I get it. John's going, I get it. I know this is hard. I get it. But I don't want you to miss what's about to come. 
So verses 10 and 11 says this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now being in the spirit, it's kind of like in a spiritual zone. This is how prophets in the Old Testament would kind of describe how they were hearing directly from God. And they were hearing clearly from God. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Lord's day being Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I'm going to take a sip of water. Hold on just a second, guys. I've been dealing with this for like a month, and I can't get the cough to go away. I did go to the doctor, finally. I'm all right. Um, (laughs) After a month, I went. Okay, so in this, you got him saying like, hey, I want you to write this down. I get it. I know where you're coming from. Write this down and send it to these seven churches, all right? But again, this is a picture for all churches for all time. And then what happens next is the beginning of the actual revelation. And guys, what you're going to see next is an awesome picture. It's a weird, strange picture, all right? And you're going to look at it first and be like, I don't know what he's talking about. We'll get there, all right? It's this kind of strange picture of what's happening. So in verses 12 through 16, it says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Told you, it was weird, all right? Like, this is not one of those that we're going to tell, like, hey, Veritas kids, today we're going to draw a picture of this in glass. Like, you got, like, eyes burning, swords coming out your mouth. This is a strange picture. Now, what is this picture that John is seeing? If you jump down, it's not going to be on the screen, but verses 17 and 18, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his, his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, listen to this. I am the living one. I died... And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. Who died and lives forevermore? It's Jesus. He's getting a picture of the resurrected Lord here. In overwhelming circumstances, where does the revelation begin? Putting John and the seven churches' attention on Jesus. Not on everything else, but I want to tell you about how awesome Jesus is. Don't miss how awesome Jesus is in this. So the Lord's speaking directly to him and he kind of, he turns around to look at this picture where this voice is coming from. Now this is not an actual picture of Jesus, but this is a picture of who Jesus is, all right? So it's like that. Not an actual, like Jesus doesn't walk around with a sword coming out of his mouth, okay? But it's, it's, like, it's who he is, what he represents. And it says, what I saw is... There was one like the Son of Man, and he was standing in the midst of seven lampstands. Like, this is not easy and understandable. Well, the great part of chapter 1 is he kind of gives us, at the end of it, like the test key of like, oh, this is what this means, all right? So look down to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus, the one like the Son of Man, is standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. And what are the seven lampstands? The seven? 
Hey, you got it. See, it wasn't that hard, right? He told you what it is. Now, as we get further in Revelation, it's not that easy, all right? So I got the easy scripture this morning. But Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is standing in the midst of his church. Because we can go, like, where's Jesus when churches are starting to compromise? Where is Jesus in the midst of the persecuted church? Oh, he's in the midst of his church. You can count on him. He hasn't abandoned his church. He's there. He is absolutely there. Now, it says, and the seven stars were in his right hand. And those seven stars were the angels of the seven churches. All right? There's a couple different interpretations you could take here. All right? So, first off, and they're both, they can both be accurate. All right? So, heaven, angels are referred to as heavenly beings like 60 times throughout Revelation. All right? So, these angels of the seven churches could be heavenly beings, kind of like guardian angels, representative angels over each church. So each church was represented by an angel. Now, all throughout the Bible, the word angel often represents messengers. So the one that was bringing a message from God. So it also could mean the leaders of churches, the pastors of these churches, the ones overseeing in authority over these churches that were get bringing messages from God to the churches, all right? So you could say, all right, were these angels, these seven stars, were they like heavenly beings representative over each church or were they the leaders of each church? Either way, uh, where was the seven stars? Where were the seven stars at in this passage? They were in Jesus' right hand. And what that represents is that Jesus was in control. Whether they're heavenly beings or they're the pastors of churches, Jesus was in control of these churches. Don't forget it, that Jesus was in control. So Jesus is in the midst of them. In trials and suffering and compromise, their attention is to be drawn to Jesus. Now, what was Jesus like? It says he was like a son of man. Now, going back to Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel, you get this kind of apocalyptic literature, this vision that the prophet Daniel is going to see. And in this, what Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7 is four beasts. And these beasts are ruling over the earth, all right? Well, at some point, we find out that these beasts actually were four rulers and kings on the earth. So there were four rulers that were ruling over the earth. But then this guy named the Ancient of Days who represents God is going to come over and he's going to rule, establish a new kingdom. He's going to take over these four kings and he's going to establish this new eternal kingdom that's going to last forever. And then he's going to hand over the rule of it to one like a son of man, to his son Jesus. So this picture you get in Daniel chapter 7 is God, the ancient of days, is going to rule over multiple kingdoms. He's going to take and establish his own kingdom and he's going to give that rule to Jesus. So the one like a son of man that we find out in Revelation is Jesus. So it's this picture. Oh, yeah, I remember back in Daniel. Remember those four kings? They were, it's kind of overwhelming. They were ruling over everything. And then the ancient of days and the son of man comes. Again, for a discouraged church wanting to compromise, this is like an encouraging picture of Jesus. A weird picture for us, right? But an encouraging picture for them. It says he had a long robe and a sash. This represented like superior status, royal status, priestly status. The longer your robe was meant that you had more power in a 
army. So if you were in more authority in the army, the longer your robe got. So they go, oh, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is standing there with a long robe. He's in authority. He's in control here. And the sash was worn by priest. Man, this is a king and a priest that we're talking about here. This is a picture of Jesus that we're seeing. It says his hair was like white wool, like snow. First thing you need to know is don't make fun of Richard anymore for his gray hair, all right? Or mine, I'm right here, all right? Um, like all throughout scripture, right? People like with gray hair, it represented wisdom. Like it, my house, it means stress from four kids, all right? But like, like you get wisdom from the experience of life. And so there's this picture of Jesus here, not only as like royal status, not only as priestly status, but all wise status, all knowing status. And then it says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. There's this like sparkling vitality to his eyes where he's seeing everything and you can't hide from him. All these persecutors, you can't hide from Jesus. You can't hide. It's saying that he's in the role of judge. That Christ knows the spiritual condition of everyone's heart and he will judge them. It says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This foundation of his feet, where he's founded, is founded on moral purity. And it's a beautiful, awesome picture of Jesus that they're being shown right from the beginning of this revelation. And then it says his voice was like the roar of many waters. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls before? I had the opportunity to go a couple times and uh, got to ride on a little boat, the Maid of the Mist, that kind of goes right up next to the falls. And when you're on that boat, the water is coming down so hard. It literally is like roaring. And you're like yelling at the next person. Hey, do you see this? They're like, yeah, I'm standing right here. I can see it too, right? And it's just this, but it's so loud. You're just, everybody's yelling because the, the roar of the waters extends everywhere. That's what we're talking about Jesus here. His voice extends everywhere. Nobody's going to hide from his voice. And again, it talks about his right hand having the stars, everything in control. And then it says, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So what's coming out of his mouth? His words, right? And those words are sharp, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is piercing. Jesus' word is piercing. And it should pierce your heart when you look at it. And it's going to divide. It's going to get to the depths of your life. Guys, what an awesome picture of Jesus. For a group of people persecuted, overwhelmed, they get an incredible picture of Jesus. And then it says, his face was like the sun shining. This was a picture of an Israelite warrior coming back after he had just been victorious. That's where the vision of Jesus ends here. Like, oh, he's victorious. Victorious over Egypt. Victorious over Babylon. He's going to be victorious over Rome too. 
So guys, in tribulation, what do you need to see? What does the church need to see? It doesn't need to see a meek and mild Jesus. It needs to see a wise, all-knowing, strong, protective, refined, powerful, victorious, sharp, sovereign, and purifying priest, king, and judge. Because then the circumstances that seem so big in your life, when compared to that picture of Jesus, you're like, I think I can handle it. Not by your might, not by your power, but by the Spirit of God. You want to be assured in your life and go, okay, help's coming. You look to Jesus. Again, not just any picture of Jesus. We're like sunlight shining on his head and a picture that you see like you look at this kind of picture of Jesus who is victorious so how does John respond we're almost done how does John respond verses 17 through 19 when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I'm the first and the last the living one I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades write these things therefore that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. How does John respond to this picture? Awestruck humility. He falls on his face as though dead. Oh my goodness. Like when I look at this, how? How do I, how do I, I, I got nothing. But when he's on his face as though dead, this com- compassionate picture of Jesus reaches over and as he's on the ground he Jesus reaches over with his hand and puts it on his shoulder and what does he say fear not you don't have to be scared you don't have to be scared of the opposition you don't have to be scared of the enemies you don't have to be scared of me like you keep an accurate view of me but don't be scared and then he says I want you to go write this down and I want you to share it with people so guys why should John and the church not fear why should they be encouraged How can they be assured that they're going to overcome defeat like Jesus? Because this is what I want you to know. Find your assurance by focusing your attention on Jesus. Find your assurance by focusing your attention on Jesus. When you're unjustly persecuted, you fix your eyes on Jesus for assurance. If you're wondering where help's going to come through in the midst of trials, you put your focus and attention on Jesus. Don't put it on the things of this world. Don't put it on the things this world offers. Look at Jesus because he's going, I got it. I got it. He's the first and the last. He's the living one. His resurrection means that it provides incredible assurance and victory. And it says not only did he have victory over sin, but he, he rules. And he has the keys of death in Hades so that we can live forever too. So how do we respond to this, guys? We respond like John. When you get this kind of picture of Jesus, you worship. Guys, we don't worship in this room because of a band. If there was nobody standing up here and it was just just singing, we don't worship Jess, we don't worship the band, we worship this picture of Jesus because he's awesome. You got, why do these people raise their hands? Because they know this picture of Jesus. We worship like, we don't worship because of the building we're in. We worship because of this picture of Jesus, how awesome he is. That's the kind of church we want to be that doesn't compromise because we have a building or doesn't compromise because we have a good preacher or a good band. We don't compromise because we have a great picture of Jesus. 
That's the kind of church we want to be, church. Amen? So you worship, and then you don't fear what is right in front of you. And then you go share that with other people. Because your coworkers need to know how awesome Jesus is. Your family members need to know how awesome Jesus is. Guys, let's keep that picture of Jesus as Veritas Urbana and as Veritas Cedar Rapids. Amen? Let's pray. God, I'm so, so thankful. So, so thankful for Jesus. Thank you that he, you allowed him to conquer death. And God, I know there's people in this room that are facing terrible circumstances and terrible trials. Father, I pray that today their minds and their hearts will be lifted to the things above and taken off the things of this earth where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Please draw our attention upward. Please, God. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.